Building in Perth, everything you wish you knew in five informative episodes. Available on YouTube, Spotify and Apple Podcasts. Welcome back. We are at the end of the road. This is the fifth and final episode of Building in Perth. I really, really hope you've enjoyed it uh, so far. I've certainly enjoyed putting it together. It hasn't been without its challenges. I've had 150 odd takes, maybe more. Uh, tried to get phone calls to record that didn't record and had to redo them and all sorts of weird and wonderful technical dramas along the way. But I think we got there in the end and I really, really hope you've taken some value out of it for all of the uh, the effort that uh, we've all put in in making it happen. So where we're at with the the whole process now is basically we're at the build stage. So who better to talk to than a site manager? What we're going to be going through is every little uh, stage of the build all the way from basically site works all the way through to key handover. We're going to be having a chat to Brendan Evel, who is the site manager for ABN Group, and he's actually held several other roles uh, throughout the building industry as well. So he's got a very broad uh, knowledge base. So without further ado, let's get on the phone to Brendo. Hey, mate, you there? Yep. How are you going? Yeah, good, man. Thanks for taking a little bit of time out of your weekend to do this uh, for us. So, Look, first off, why don't you just fill us in um, with just a little bit about yourself, your time in the building industry uh, up until now. Yeah, no problems. I mean, always been a bit of a maker. I'm intrigued by how things go together. So the building industry was just sort of a natural choice, you know. So coming out of school, I jumped straight into cabinet making, which is kind of high-end stuff with shop fitting and stuff, so quite quite um, intricate, which was um, intriguing. And then I got on to doing my building diploma, which naturally led me towards you know, building construction proper um, and got me foot in the door through scheduling and estimating, which was um, very interesting. And then sort of shifted my focus across towards through contract administration. I sort of saw the, the sales and consulting side. So I've um, done a bit of a stint there, which was awesome, being able to help people understand the process, which I guess is a bit of what we're doing now as well. So, And um, moving through there, it was um, time for the diploma to use that I've got. So jumped into construction supervision to actually start building them from the ground up. Awesome. So what is, I guess, the role of a site manager or site supervisor? Just uh, to clarify it for people that uh, might be listening in, what is, I guess, your day to day, what does your day look like? Yeah, I suppose if you if you have any mates that are builders or, or trading specifically, you know, when you're looking to build a house, you'll hear them always say, you know, it's not the building company, it's the it's a supervisor. Now, it's not 100% true, but it definitely has a lot of weight because my job, me, I solely build the home effectively, you know. I have my own um, portfolio of tradespeople. Um, I choose the person that's going to do that task on your home. So if I choose someone that, you know, doesn't communicate, doesn't have that personal investment, doesn't want to give you the home that you're going to live in, then naturally the, the sum of the product is not going to be, you know, as good as it could be, you know. Cool. So um, just to touch a little bit more on that, so you actually choose a lot of the, the trades that will build the home, is that right? Yeah, exactly. So I have a handful of, um, of trades for each part of the build. So I've got a couple of brickies, a couple of, um, you know, of plasterers, a couple of painters. So it might even be that I know that this particular has the experience to your particular design of home properly. So Sure. So is it, is it fair to say, um, I guess it's like with any other job that you try and keep the team the same because you communicate effectively and you ultimately it ends up with a better result would that be a fair uh fair fair sort of way to explain it that would yeah exactly correct you know um 
a football team they might win a premiership this year and then a bunch of the um you know the handful of senior guys step out and then you're in a rebuilding phase for five years just after yep. winning the cup so it's exactly the same you got to everybody's got to know each other and i can't be everywhere at all times you know i'm across everything all the time but i can't be there so you really got to have that level of communication and trust in you guys yeah that actually is a really great way of explaining it funnily enough um, okay, let's dive into the stages of the build. That's, uh, I guess, the the main reason I sort of wanted to have a bit of a, a chat to you was to let you kind of talk us through each little stage of the build. So when um, people that are listening are going through their build process, they kind of can understand what is happening at every stage along the way. So I guess we'll kick off with uh, site works and I guess what happens around that sort of phase. Yeah. Um, I guess if, if you look at it, preparation is always key. You know, if you're painting a wall, you've got to fill it and sand it, otherwise the paint won't be any good. The same with your home. We, you know, I'm lucky enough that I work with a company that gives you a 25-year structural guarantee, which is which is pretty crazy. So you've got to make sure that whatever the ground is doing or has done or if it's been altered in any way, that that's been done correctly even before my site works commence. And then you're going to have engineers inspections and, and the such, which is going to tell you what the soil is doing and, and what sort of footings and foundations, et cetera, need to go. And, and depending on the type of plumbing and the locations of plumbing, you know, you, depending on where your silver running is, you might have to, you know, do a little bit of earthwork and then do that and then recompact. And it's, um, it's quite, quite, um, a tricky process that has to be thought through and done, done properly. And if you get, you know, a lot of settlement in one area, things you didn't think about the order of things, then, you know, that's where you could come unstuck down the road. Yeah, so I mean, I know that when I meet clients a lot of the time, um, just simply for the fact that they they don't know any better, they might not have built before or whatever it might be, is that especially if it's in what we call a greenfields estate, which is like a a major development of you know hundreds of lots or whatever, and all of these blocks look flat and sandy, um, they don't quite understand that site works is still something that needs to be done to the site. You don't just go ahead and start laying a concrete slab on a on a on a block. You know what I mean? Yeah, definitely. There's always there's probably infinitely less variable than, um, you know, a home, that, a block of land that mum and dad bought in between five other erected houses and a 20-year-old suburb. But it's um, it's still, yeah, not a cakewalk. you still got to understand what the levels are for next door, you know, from the from the top of your site to the road and where the sewer connection is, stormwater, um, yeah, retaining works. If there's, you know, then there might be roots underneath, you know, because there's just clear the forest off the top. So, it's um, you're a lot safer with a greenfield, but definitely you still got to make those big considerations in the beginning. For sure. So I guess after site works are sort of complete, what is the the next sort of stage uh, that we that we get to? Yeah, once all your sort of compaction and stuff has been you know certified and and your um, plumbing prelays, so you know, they'll. You sort of imagine a bit of a grid on the block, and then you run all of your pipes for where your shower's going to be, and where your toilet and your basins and your, your um, sinks in the kitchen, etc. Once all that's done and everything's poking out the ground, you'll have your um, your concrete guys come to site. Um, they'll have had some new little pegs put in for um, set out from surveyors and that, so they know exactly. So you accidentally build, you know, into next door's block, which is never fun. Um, <laughs> <laughs> it really happens. Uh, no, but um. You really, yeah, you've got to just think about engineering, get your foundations in. So you, you, you start breaking into two parts over two days, basically. You know, you dig all your trenches and you put all of your footings in, which are your big strip rectangular pieces of concrete all around the perimeter. And, you know, some of the more reactive parts, you might have to do some slab strengthening under walls and stuff. Um, but really, 
you know, there's drawings that would walk you through that if you wanted to understand it as a, as a client a bit better. And then the next day, the slug gets poured all over the top. So then it's just down to curing, basically. Cool. So just to touch just on the footings and the slab, just a little bit more so people understand uh, how those uh, components are determined. That is actually dictated by engineers, not by the builders. So um, we, yeah, we actually get engineering documents and any builder would be the same from their consulting engineers. Um, and it's basically built to that specification, not something that the builder makes up. Would that be fair, Brendan? Absolutely, yeah. The, um Yes, the reactivity of the soil is what it would be called by the engineers, and that's literally about how much um, water the ground will hold, where the water level is, and how much it's going to move between getting wet and drying out effectively, unless you're in the hills, which is, you know, a fault line, um, which is completely fish, but it's mainly just about how much the ground is going to move, because if you don't know that, then you don't know how thick to make um, your concrete effectively. Cool. All right. So the slab uh, is poured, sits there for a little while, goes through a bit of a, a curing process, and then we sort of hit the brickwork stage. So would you mind sort of talking us through, uh, I guess, what happens there and timeframes and, and what people can expect to see? Yeah, I guess once that, the slab is actually down, you want to leave it for at least like a week and a bit, sort of with nothing, just to let it go. Depending on winter and summer, it does different things. You know, in summer, you might need to slow it down a little bit so it doesn't harden too fast. Because one thing that sweeps a lot of people out is there's always going to be cracks. And it's the type of crack that is the thing. It's not whether there's a crack, it's what type of crack. So usually when you bake a cake, they'll dry out a little bit because you're taking the water out and then when you're on the top of the cake, you've got those little cracks coming out from the centre. It's exactly the same. So that's why you just have to leave it alone for a while, just to let it all settle down to dry out. Um, with brickwork, there's a few things there to consider with engineering as well. So sometimes you might need to bring steel up to the top, um, you know, to tie it all together. But it's really, for any bricky team, you're looking at around about a week to four weeks, depending on the size of the team um, and the type of... Um, construction method, you know, we do double brick with all internal brick walls um, in Perth. So you're really looking at no more than you know, four weeks for, for a bricky team to get from slab to plate high. Cool. So basically um, when you say plate high, um, for those listening, that's basically where brickwork is complete and we're basically ready to talk about the next section, which is where our uh, roof timbers go on. So you want to sort of explain what happens uh, around that time in terms of, I guess, not just the roof timbers, but also things like the uh, electrical tube and pre-wire and the plumbing um, uh, chasing and stuff like that as well? Yeah, absolutely. So that all does move fairly quickly from um, from once once you reach that plate height, which is quite literally the roof carpenters, their first task is to go around and put a plate, which is a piece of um, timber, on, they fix it to the top of every wall the entire way around except for the external leaf of the double brick. And um, that's what they actually then start fixing their roof timbers too. So once they do that, you know, they um, a chip, roof chippy team will take between three and six days, again, depending on the size, and they'll start um, start pitching their roof and, and get um, everything done. So, again, I use a, a stick roof um, method, which is you get a whole bunch of timbers that have been sort of set out in the design by the schedulers, um, and then every single component of the roof is cut individually depending on what size it needs to be, what kind of strength it needs to be for that component. So a raft is different to a hip, which is different to a ridge, which is different to all those different bits and pieces. So you can get truss roofs, which could be timber. You can get um, steel roofs. But there's just – when you start doing that sort of stuff, you get into 
if it's not right when it's out there, it goes to pot. Or if you use stuff like steel, there's a lot of movement, a lot of noise. So with my specific methodology, yep, the guys will get out, cut all the timbers, put everything together. Once that's done is when you would start to look at doing your, your tube phase, which is for your plumbing and, electrical. And, yeah, actually, it's funny you should mention noise, and I'll just chime in there with a little bit of personal experience here. Um, where I actually live, I'm on – uh, in an apartment building and I'm on the, the top floor and there is a um, aluminium uh, steel frame roof above me and I can absolutely vouch for the fact that it is noisy. Ping, ping. Yeah, yeah, so ab- absolutely. So especially when things getting hot and cold and things like that, it creaks and it pops and it is actually quite noisy. Not to say that it's a uh, incorrect construction method, but it is something to consider yeah, you, yeah. Get a little, you get a little bit of movement in everything. That's the biggest thing with construction is it's just mitigating the natural movement of natural products, you know, so you're always going to get a little bit of, of movement in things, but then you can also do your best to minimise that. Of course. So our um, stick roof is up and we are on to actually putting something on top of it so we don't get rained on. So do you want to talk about that roof cover uh, phase and maybe just touch on the, the different sort of process that might go with a colour bond sort of like sheet metal roof versus something like tile? Yeah, absolutely. You can imagine um, just sort of, I did miss a little bit that you sort of asked me just in that last part with year tube out, so with electricity and plumbing. So those bits do get sort of chased into the wall, um, which is where you cut grooves basically to get everything up to the top and then down to your basins and stuff. So the key here is to not put roof cover on before your electricians and your um some of the things because they get really angry because all of the stuff is um, connected to your timbers the whole way through. If you imagine you've got, you know, kilometres of wiring almost up in the roof, you know, all of that stuff gets connected to the timbers so it's not just floating around, which is, you know, I had it and I'm unprofessional. And same goes with, yeah, with the plumbing. So once that's in, yeah, you've got um, all of your battens fixed to the top of the the, um, the roof structure is where you screw your, your steel, you know, your steel roof cover too. So... You can imagine how light the, the colour bond is. It, it is really, really lightweight, but it's incredibly strong through the profiling. So I guess you have a lot less timber in a tin roof than a tile roof, because whether they're concrete tiles, which are a bit heavier than a clay tile or a clay tiles, you've still got tons of material up there. So you'll notice if you were to look closely, you've got, I won't get into too many of the, the dimensions and stuff, but all of your um, rafters and stuff are much closer together for a tile roof versus a tin roof. So they're all, all locked together when it's up there, but you basically, the key difference is the construction method remains much the same. You just have more beams um, in the roof and more timbers, you know, on the, um, the pitching sections of, of a tile roof and a tin roof, basically. But they cover themselves. They have their own pros and cons. And for the most part, it's just a, what did you grow up with, you know? Are you a colorblind person or are you a tile person? There's no real yep. difference in the two. And I, yeah, I find that with my clients as well. Uh, quite often, that's usually a, it's either they're one or the other. Um, I certainly see there is a, a heavy slant towards colour bond. Uh, obviously, I guess it doesn't have any long, any sort of long term maintenance implications and things. And I guess technically speaking, it might be a little bit more secure because you you've got yeah, yeah, a battle gun up there to get in rather than just slipping a tile. I know I've let yeah. myself in when the keys have been locked in the house a couple of times <laughs> to a tile. So. <laughs> Fun, funnily enough, uh, when I was uh, growing up, I actually did that to our house as well when I'd locked myself out. It is very it is very easy to break into a, a home with a tiled roof. When I actually changed my mind and became a colourblind person myself. <laughs> so now we've got the the roof on i guess the the next stage will be the plaster on the walls um or maybe maybe it's not plaster maybe it's uh drywall do you want to sort of talk through i guess the different 
types of finishes that we can then apply to that internal uh, brickwork at this stage? Yeah, yep. So um, the whole process of construction like that roof is on becomes a lot more fluid too, or a lot of your environmental um, implications are removed effectively. You're not now governed by moisture, you know, falling from the sky, which you'll find, um, you know, if your clients are, are wondering what's going on with, you know, sometimes you get delayed in the early days with um, stuff that doesn't really continue through the whole build. It's just once you get out of the weather, everything will just flow. So it's a bit of a relief from a construction supervisor's point of view. Um, as far as what you put on the walls, again, it's really preference because everything has pros and cons. So historically, Perth has just been double brick construction and lime plaster on the walls. Now, lime plaster is effectively, that's your set. If you hear people call floating sets, the second section is the white plaster, which is the set. Now, that is just so soft, but that is actually what it is. You know, you drag your nails across a freshly white set wall with the lime plaster. You just scratch big, deep grooves into it. So what the industry's basically done now is it's moved, moved across to called um, a gypsum-based product, which out is Pro-Rock. It's been specifically formulated for Perth, so we're not using something that's come from um, England which has different moisture, you know, different temperature you know, variations. So that's pretty cool. But it gets much harder. It's sandable, um, and it's just much more hard wearing down down the line. But then with your drywall, which is starting to come in as a little bit more of a, a new idea for Perth, um, it can be said that it looks a bit flatter because um, you've obviously got big flat panels that you're putting on the wall. But if your brickwork isn't entirely straight necessarily or, or whatever, then it's still going to follow the undulations of the wall. Um, and again, inherently much softer because it's not it's not a, a hard drying product like the Pro Rock. So we, I do both and they're both fantastic. I would have both in my home. But realistically, you know, Pro Rock's a bit harder um, and you get a few other joints which are, you know, maybe you know, more prone to a little bit of um, separation long, 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 long term than with a product which is a product that adhered to the wall in one wet piece and then dries into a monolithic sort of finish. Yeah, cool. So just to clarify for people at home, what the hell does monolithic mean, mate? <laughs> one piece. <laughs> <laughs> oh, yeah, I got, the, I got the builder brain kicking in. Sorry, yeah. Um, <laughs> no, it's like, if you imagine, um, yeah, it's one piece. Effectively, yep, so sure. it's going on wet as, as a big you know thing, and then it's all pushed together and then it dries into one big piece. So you yep. get um, you know your home is always going to settle. There's that movement thing we were talking about. So you get you know settlement little um, imperfections visually, but they're just very easy surface finish. But you know with um with your drywall, you know you've got um, lots of pieces stuck together, which. Yep. Then we're talking long term here because they're you know talking 25, 30, 40 years. So does what it wants over that period in time. So they're both equally as good as each other. Cool. Yeah, so I guess it is a um, talking point to have with your building consultant. Um, I know that we offer uh, both solutions and I'm I'm pretty sure that most other builders are offering uh, the the two different solutions now as well. So uh, it is just a a discussion point to have with your uh, building consultant to try and figure out what is going to be the best fit for you. Um, okay, so we are at plastered walls or drywalled walls, and then we've got our ceilings that go in. So do you want to just sort of talk on that process a little bit? Yeah, so there's one little tiny step in between there, which is your glazing. So um, oh, your course. window yep, frames, sure. it's, it's tough life being a window frame because they go in with the bridging. They have to. I mean, there's no other way to get them in otherwise. So they're just sitting around, you know, with everybody doing everything around them for the whole build. Um, but as 
once you've got your plaster on the wall, because you want that ventilation, because regardless of what you're doing, um, with your drywall, you've got a bit more of an option to get glazing on earlier because you're not putting as much wet stuff on the walls. But with any sure. plaster, you obviously want the home breathing so it doesn't get too moist in there. So give or take, either method, by the end of plastering, you get all your windows and stuff in, and then a few days after that, you start, um, you're looking at your, your lock-ups, which is where you really start getting into the finishing details of the home. Awesome. So... I guess um, at that stage, people can't really pop out on the weekend and walk through the home anymore, and it's it it's, uh, does take the excitement away just a little bit because it does seem almost seem like things slow down at that point because obviously uh, during that and those initial construction phases up to getting to lock up, things actually do move relatively quickly. Then it might seem like it does taper off quite a lot, but it's just that there is a lot of I guess um, work that goes into. Uh, finishing the internals. So do you want to take us through what those internal stages are and in what order they generally happen? And I know that these can change order sometimes and things like that. So just a, a very general sort of overview. Yeah. So you can have five homes in a row that all basically look the same, but they all have you know, very different um, granular um, schedules when you start looking at you know, different things interacting, like you say. So it does feel like it slows down at lock-up. It feels like it slows down probably for a week or two, um, even though you've got you know other bits and pieces with a bit of painting happening. Again, it's, it's all your undercoating, so it still looks a little bit rough, but it doesn't look like anything's happened. Because, and once you sort of get to that last three or four weeks of the process, um, which is about one or two weeks after lock-up usually, it just everything just kicks off because you can't put shiny stuff in the home until all of your major construction is complete because it will just get destroyed so it's um you only have that one little tiny slowdown point and then it just gets super exciting because every time you go like every day you go there will be something else done and it looks more and more finished every single day so i guess at lock up so say we locked up on monday which your windows went in on friday and then on monday your fixing carpenter comes in he puts all the, the doors on puts all your shelving in um puts all your bits and pieces that you know a carpenter would put in um, and then your painter will come straight through after lockup, which could be the Tuesday, um, and he'll do what's called the spray out. So he'll go through with his spray gun and he'll spray all your cornices, your ceilings, um, your doors, your frames, your shelving fronts, all bits and pieces, you know, some of the, the more intricate bits he does with a brush, but um, get all that done. Uh, and then after your spray out, so you start looking at um, getting things like your tiling underway. So all of your, you start with your wet areas. Uh, so your bathrooms and, and stuff, you don't wouldn't do your main uh, flooring at this stage. So if you've got rectified tiling, again, you've got to look at these set-down areas, which comes back down to your laying your slabs. So when the guy's laying the slabs, they've got a thousand considerations to make as well because we've set down a rectified job so that we can screed back up to get your fall correct because they're a little bit more intricate than you know, a, a, a cushioned edge tile. So. Um, waterproofing, sanning, so you've got bits and pieces, like the extra bits on top of plumbing to get ready for your toilets. And then you know, you've got to put your cabinets in, and then you put your cabinets in before or after waterproofing, depending on whether it's outside or not. So it, um, that's where those little granular changes that I was mentioning. Yeah, I was going to say, I, I actually didn't uh, know that. That's uh, quite interesting. Yeah, but it make, makes complete sense. Yeah, and then... Just once you, so once your cabinet's starving, because you can't really tile before your cabinet, because you're going to be tiling up to your cabinet. So, and, and shower screens can only be measured up once your tiles are in. Even if they're a famous shower screen or semi-famous like ours or whatever, you still, you, you need to know where the top is, the bottom is, you know, how wide things are. And, and cause we're not 
a prefabricated thing. It's a, a lot of people can actually lose sight of the fact that a home is a handmade um, piece of furniture with like a million individual components. So everything talks to everything the whole way through. So it's, um, yeah, it's pretty, keeps you switched on. It's not a job you do unless you love it. Like I just absolutely love knowing how it goes together and the, the interaction between certain things. So that comes back to your trade as well and, and selecting the right people for the right jobs. So it's all pretty critical. Yeah, for sure. So I guess after those um, cabinets, bits and pieces in, the last sort of thing, if I'm not mistaken, to really go in would be the main floors and then we've got essentially cleaning and, and an inspection by the client. Would that be the, the right sort of order of things there? Yeah, yeah. so your, your main um, yeah, your main flooring and then your, your softer furnishings um, and, you know, robes, um, window, window treatment. Um, what else would there be? Yeah, I guess. If you had something like a, a timber or a, um, a, you know, an engineered flooring or, or vinyl or something, they go in even a little bit after the main floor tiling wood. Um, you've also yep. got little things called your, your gloss out. So I said your painter comes in after your lock up and then you yep. get your tiling done, you get some cabinets done, you get other bits and pieces done, you get your first clean and then, you, you know, your painter will come in and he'll do your, your gloss out. And then after that gloss out done, your carpets will go in. And then after carpets, your bedroom robes would go in because you obviously your carpets change the height of the bottom of the robes. So there's another one of those little interactions. Um, and then yeah, yeah, you're basically onto a hit list stage at that point because practical completion is your home is practically complete. But then you've also yep. still got probably about a week's worth of work there just to bring it right up and get it looking absolutely how you would expect to be moving into a home. Cool. And so, yeah, around that time, uh, you would obviously meet with the client and give him a bit of a walk through the home. Is that correct? Absolutely. Yeah. And I had a, there you go. Yeah, I was just going to say, oh yeah, I was just going to say, and what, what does that process look like for you? So what are you doing during that meeting with the client? Yeah, I was, um, <clears throat> had a little bit of a chuckle with your, um, your bit about not being able to get into the home once the, the home's locked up because it is, it's, it's <laughs> quite, it's quite annoying because all of a sudden you can't get into your home anymore. And then, yeah. you know, we do about, it's about two weeks typically after you, your home locks up, we'll have a thing called a progress meeting where you, you do, you let your clients um, come in first for about half an hour and we'll meet you on site and we'll, we'll give you a bit of a snapshot of where the home is and what's left to do. And so you've got a bit of an understanding because we know you can't get in anymore. I, mean, you've got, I have um, all around the house, typically at around, um, you know, chest height for me and then sometimes a bit higher, these little round dots on all the windows the whole way around the home from everybody leaning on the windows looking in to see what's going on. <laughs> so you know which clients you're invested in their home and which aren't. So that's always fun. But um, yeah, we'll let them in, do a progress meeting. You can sort of start to see where your, your conceptual ideas because um, they are just ideas until they're in there um, and have come together so they can look at their tiles versus their cabinets and bits and pieces and, and we'll from there, we look at, um, you know, booking your home presentation, which is one of the very last final stages and our, our last meeting together on site. Cool. And so I guess that sort of wraps up the completion of the home, but I know that this isn't your uh, area specifically, but would you mind just touching on, I guess, the importance of the service period and warranty period uh, after the build as well? Because I think that kind of is still – uh, an important one for people to understand. Yeah, it's like um, <clears throat> obviously the quality of the product straight away in anything that you purchase is always you know the, the highest of importance because you want to get the value for the money that you spent. But how you get looked after 
after the fact or it's like when you buy a car you know if, if you have a, a thing that just goes wrong all of a sudden and it starts rattling and they're like oh well it's your car you'd be really upset so it's inevitable that not everything goes um you know 100 correctly along the way which unfortunately you know our our trades and um products and our process means that you know slip ups are minimal if not you don't almost don't happen which is great but you just need to know you'll be looked after afterwards and homes do move i've mentioned that a few times you get a lot of settlement stuff and it is it's the process your home has to sit on the ground and just sink down a little bit and different point loads in different positions mean different corners will move at different times and then if it's extra rainy it's going to move a bit more and hard products don't move you know they, they have to they have to release their energy somewhere so we me i'm lucky we give you a 12 year sorry 12 month service warranty period so that's four seasons if you think about it like we've just built your house yep. over about three seasons and then you get another four seasons. Now, the um, important bit there is you've got a summer to dry out and sink and shrink, and then you've got another winter to get fat and move back out again. So all of your major stuff inside of the home is going to happen at around four to seven months from when you've moved in. That's when, realistically, you're going to have your biggest shift in direction. So I know for a fact a lot of the builders out there will give you a four-month defect period. Great, you know, just move straight into summer and then you're on your own. Whereas with us, yep, yep. you know, it gives you the, the peace of mind that everything's kind of relaxed a little bit and then we come back and anything that has shifted, you get fixed by us as a proper builder and then probably for the next, you know, few years, you're not going to have anything major happen. And then from there, it's just like a home. You've got to look after your home. You can't just not look after it long term. So. Cool. So I guess what I took from that is that just because of the, the nature of what a build is being handmade and needing to settle through seasons and and the weather, which we I guess we do have no control over the the weather. It is something that we that we move through. Is that that longer service period is really really critical for the homeowner, just so they're not sort of uh, left footing the bill for uh, things that should really be taken care of. Would that be a, a fair assumption? It's exactly yep. correct, and you know that it's getting fixed in the same method that it was installed as well. So you don't just have yeah, to hand around sort of thinks he knows where he's doing, which he may do. But um, you know, you yeah, can't know till the job's done. Cool. All right. Well, look, I think that about wraps up everything I wanted to cover. Is there anything else that you would like to um to add in there, mate? Um, no, not really. Um, I suppose I mean, my job's the best job in the world. I get to build homes for people, so that's probably um my biggest takeout from from what I get to do. But I guess there's yeah, so many. I guess there's so many variables. You just have to kind of um. Just watch them and, and roll with the punches throughout a build. Like me, for me as a client, if I was a client knowing what I know now, you can't be on top of everything, you know. So you've got to kind of just relax and have that faith in, in the builder. But then you've also got to make sure you choose a builder that's backing up what they say. Um, you know, with things like you just mentioned, warranties and such. So that's your biggest thing is, is what are you going to get afterwards, not what you're getting during or upfront. Awesome. Uh, I've got no, no other questions really, Matt. I think that was really comprehensive and again, appreciate you doing this on the weekend. I know you've probably got a lot more fun things to be doing. So thanks very much. No problem, my man. Um, absolute pleasure. What better way to wrap up this building in Perth series than to talk to a site manager and go through all of those little sections of the build. I think there's a lot of value there for anyone uh, looking to build. I think it's really important to, you know, not just have fun on the front end when you're doing all of the things like the color selections and things like that, but understanding what's actually happening throughout the build is hugely beneficial and it makes it more exciting as well. You know, when you go to site, you can kind of understand exactly 
uh, what is going on and what's going to happen next and all of that sort of thing. So that's kind of why I thought it was really important to have uh, that chat with a site manager. Now, look, this pretty much draws the series on building in Perth to a close. So five episodes down. Massive thanks to Brendan from ABN Group, Chantel from Oldfield Settlements, uh, Jamie from Intelligent Home, Jamie from Urban Quarter, and Ivan from Resolve, who all chimed in at various times uh, to impart their knowledge onto us. Uh, my job is selling homes, not making uh, podcasts and video type shenanigans as much as I do enjoy doing it. So if you would like to look at building a house at any point in the future, you can get me on Facebook or Instagram at Build with Dezo. So that is Build with D-E-Z-O. Look, that about wraps it up. I really, really hope you got heaps of value out of it. I've had a good time doing it. It's been a little bit stressful as well, but that's about it for me. See you later. Building in Perth, everything you wish you knew in five informative episodes, available on YouTube, Spotify, and Apple Podcasts.